0: Welcome back and thank you for joining us again on ChangeCultivators.com where we spend a lot of time with super extraordinary and great leaders helping to understand how they help people drive change activation and deal with wildly disruptive times. My name is Patrick Fitzmorris, one of your co-hosts from the Caterpillar Farm and I'm also here with my co-host Roz. Roz, say good morning.
1: Good morning and good morning,
2: Duncan. We're looking forward to speaking to you this morning. Good morning. So in the spirit of uh, looking for world catalysts, I'm sorry none of them could show up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I think after listening to this podcast, our listeners will beg to differ. So uh, Roz and I are delighted to have Duncan Wardle with us this morning. Um, and we really want to just jump in and start asking some questions. Duncan, I know you know your career at Disney, uh, but certainly the work you're doing now at your current consultancy firm and all the keynotes that you do and all of the workshops and sessions that you do with companies across the globe, you got a pretty good perspective on this disruption and change thing. And I suspect... You have a point of view on what really holds back leaders from helping their teams thrive in disruptive times and holds them back from being really great change activators.
2: I get a couple of things. I mean, we surveyed when I first got the job, I was told you're the guy with all the big ideas. You're going to be in charge of innovation and creativity for Disney to which I replied, what the hell is that? <laughs> and and, uh, and the boss said, you know, not really sure. We just need to learn to innovate at scale. So he thought, okay, all right. So uh, model number one, I brought in an outside consultancy. I brought an IDO, very good at what they do, but we learned very quickly that when they left, we they hadn't showed us how they do what they do or you wouldn't hire them again. So model number two, Create an innovation team. I could be in charge of it. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> um, the challenge, here's the thing. And people don't, it's, it's logical, right? If you have a legal team at work, nobody else does legal. If you have a sales team, nobody else does sales. If you're an IT team, nobody does IT. Guess what happens when you create an innovation team? (laughs) You've just sent the message to the rest of the organization. They're off the hook and they don't have to innovate anymore. So we tried an accelerator program. We would bring in young tech startups that had something of interest to us. Uh, We take a 50-50 stake in it and we'd help them scale it and take it to market. That helped us take products and services to market much quicker than usual. Um, However, the, those three models, the one thing we didn't achieve was the original objective. How could we embed uh, the um, innovation into everybody's DNA? So I set about creating a toolkit. Uh, and so people say, why do you leave Disney? You were, you know, it's there 30 years, uh, head of innovation creativity. Are you mad? No, there's a monstrous gap in the market. Um, and it's this. All of our CEOs and C-suites right now are standing up saying, we must innovate. We must think differently. We must take risks. You must be brave. And all of their employees are sitting there going, that's great. How? And nobody is showing people how to innovate by simply creating a toolkit that makes innovation easy, creativity tangible, and the process fun. Why is it fun? You can't talk culture change. You have to give people a toolkit they choose to use when you're not around.
0: I I love it. And this notion of how, right? I mean, because you get it. There's a couple of ways that organizations try to change. You know, one is you stand on principle, right? So a leader declares it. Yes, we will be innovative. And that, as you said, that's not really very satisfying. Uh, Other is to really instill it either in the people, right? And so you're talking directly into the people. How do we teach them how and how do we equip them with toolkits to make the how happen? And so as I heard you say that, it's, it's awesome, right? You tried outsourcing it with IDEO. Outsourcing doesn't work. Um, you tried isolating it with an innovation team, siloing it off doesn't work. Um, it sounds like you firmly believe that in today's disruptive times, that if an organization is truly going to be able to drive change, and if a leader wants their team to drive change, it has to be everyone's responsibility.
2: Yeah, well, we ask people to take risks and be brave. Well, we don't really mean it. We want them to. We really want to meet our quarterly results. Um, but if if you give them a tool toolkit of tangible tools they can use people will take smart risks Everybody, if anybody thinks they're going oh I can't wait till we get back to business as usual you're kidding yourselves right so let's just take my industry the conference industry I spoke in I think it was 132 cities last year in 365 days I won't speak at another live conference till 2022 uh, because people will be nervous to go to conferences before there's vaccines and even then their companies will be liable if one of their employees goes to conferences and gets sick so at live conferences you're gone and so in the last 90 days, guess what? I had to reinvent myself. And so I've built a television studio in my back room here. Um, I'm playing around with, um, there's a couple of companies where uh, where I did one last week in Oculus Rift, where you're actually in the same room as other people. Uh, I've done one as an avatar, and it's just reinvented. I believe when the conference industry comes back, and I'm going to go as far as summer 2022, I reckon 40% of it will be virtual and it will stay that way. Um, and so if we think we're going back to business as usual, we're kidding ourselves. And so I think the first thing you need to do is identify what are the barriers to innovation within your culture. Uh, the five that we found at Disney when we, we surveyed 5,000 people at Pixar, Lucasfilms, Marvel, etc. And we found five. Number one, always time to think. I don't give my time to think. Number two, we're risk averse. We've got quarterly results to meet. Number three, we, uh, we say we're pro- consumer-centric, but none of us have ever spent a day with the consumer. So we're actually product-centric. Number four, ideas get stuck, diluted, or killed us and move through the organization. And number five is we all have a different definition of innovation. So we're all heading in a different distance. But here's the one on, on risk aversion, for example. Um, here's the thing we're worried about our quarterly results. Wall Street dominated the way we do business from 1920 to 2020. I'll go on a record and say, I don't think Wall Street will dominate the way we do business by 2030. Why do I believe that? Because Generation Z cares more about purpose than profit. They don't care about quarterly results. And most people think purpose is, oh yeah, it's it's our mission, isn't it? It's our, oh no, it's a charity. It's a philanthropic cause. No, it's not. It's what do you stand for? Why do I want to work here? And this ge- and this generation, not only will they not buy your products and services if they don't believe in what you stand for, they don't want to work for you. Well, how the hell will you be relevant 10 years from today if a generation says, I don't want to work for that company? So I'll give you a tangible example. I was asked to give a talk to the world's largest manufacturer of hammer, chisels, and source tools. So I thought, I know nothing about this industry. So I went down to Home Depot and Lowe's and I hung out on the aisle like some creepy dude for two days, freaking out their consumers and just spying on people, basically. Um, And so I just listened to their consumers at the point of purchase. And I went back to talk to them and said, guess what? This generation, not once did they mention your brand. Not once did they mention a product, a hammer, a chisel, or a saw. Not once did they mention the price point, which is what your strategy tells you they should be focused on. What they were actually talking about was what was important to them. We're gonna remodel our dream bathroom, our dream kitchen, we're gonna build our dream house. I said, your purpose, if you choose to create one, is you could be the brand who helps people build their dreams. And you can see the finance guys rolling their eyes thinking, this guy's nuts. This will never help me drive my quarterly results. No, it probably won't, but it might save your job and it might save your industry, but actually I think it's already too late. Why? Because if you're the brand who can help people build their dreams, you could be in sports, entertainment, finance, IT, insurance, hospitality, you could be in any industry you wanted to, you could be in education, but oh no, we make tools and we're really good at it. And in fact, our definition of innovation isn't its iteration, we're going to expand into Mexico and India, they have a growing middle class, they will buy our tools. No, they won't. We're buying, we're building houses today in Houston, Texas, on a 3D printer. I saw a surgeon in Hyderabad, India two years ago do a CAT scan on somebody's heart, print it on a 3D printer, see where the issues were and then go in and operate. Amazon spent tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on shipping last year. It is not in Amazon's best interest to continue to do that. I put it to you that if we didn't have a smartphone 15 years ago, then 15 years from now, a third of what you buy on Amazon, you will print at home. The table, you'll print it. Chair, you'll print it. A book, you'll print it. Clothes, do I think you'll be able to print it by 2035? Maybe not, maybe 2040. Food eventually, don't know if we want a sustainable planet, right? So here's the thing, if I can print anything I want on demand 15 years from today, what will I be using a hammer, a chisel or a saw for? Oh no, that's right. They'll be in a museum, but because they have no purpose, they got nowhere to go, and they will die as an industry.
0: The scale of disruption that you talk about is is almost unfathomable for most humans to get their heads around who lead organizations. And I love it. And you maybe flash back to a uh, you know, quote attributed to Henry Ford at the start of the automobile when he said, "Look, if I had gone out and I had done research, I they all would have told me to build a faster horse, right? Like nobody would have told us to go here along the way. The scale of what you're talking about is taking that to a whole different place. Don't think about the product. Think about the end." think about the benefit that a consumer is getting out of it. And it's a totally mind-blowing thing for most people as they get into the space of change and disruption.
2: Yeah, look, the amount of industries. Look, 90 days ago, you and I walked into a shop and bought something. 90 days ago, you and I went to a gym. Well, you might. I didn't. (laughs) But 90 (laughs) 90 days ago, we used to go to restaurants. 90 days ago, I spoke at conferences. I haven't been to a shop in 90 days. I use um, uh, Instacart for my food. I use Amazon for everything else. I haven't been to a restaurant. I use Uber Eats for that. Um, I haven't gone to a gym. I found this uh, class online. Now, will we go back after a vaccine? Yes. Will we go back in the numbers that we were before? Absolutely not. And so here's I'll give you uh, a metaphor, but one I believe to be true. Now multiply that through the change that's coming to industry. I don't believe that you and I will ever shake hands with another human being again as long as we live. As sad as that sounds and as dramatic as it sounds, um, shaking hands is a habit. We're not going to shake hands until after a vaccine. Well, that's a year and a half from now, by the time we get one. By then the habit will have gone, and we'll never shake hands again. Now multiply that by every single industry that's coming. But here's our challenge. Let's just take time to think for a moment. So Patrick, Roz, Roz, let me ask you both a question. Close your eyes. Where are you, and what are you doing when you get your best ideas?: Okay Well, Would where you are like you? To know? Yes, please. Uh,
1: I'm generally doing something I enjoy and okay. I am not thinking about the problem
2: actually that I'm supposed to be okay. solving. All right, Patrick, I'm where
1: are you? I'm away from that environment.
2: Okay, Patrick, where are you when you get your best ideas?
0: Well, I'm not going to go with shower because that's over- overuse, <laughs> but I'm going to go with running. Usually, it's when I'm out and I'm okay. running or right. something and it's making that happen.
2: Yeah, so you're here shower, jogging, running, commuting, gardening, painting, playing with the children, rolling around on the floor with a large glass or something. But the only words you never hear, and I've done this with 3000 people in an audience, at work. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? Because I paint out big ideas at work. Now, picture the last verbal argument you have with somebody. And you were angry at Fred. Fred, you son of a bitch. You blind copied my boss on that email. Um, I, I can't. I'll never work with you again. You storm out of the office. You go down to your local coffee shop. You get a cup of coffee. And you're, you're beginning to relax now. It's five or ten minutes after the argument's over. And boom, just what popped into your what popped into your head spontaneously five minutes after the argument.
0: For me, it's longer than five minutes because it takes me a while to come back with that last zinger.
2: Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the killer one-liner, that one beautiful perfect line that you wished. Oh yeah, if I'd have said that, I'd have had it. Oh yeah, the perfect line. Oh yeah. You could write <laughs> volumes, you could write volumes and volumes and volumes of the perfect line you never delivered. Right? Mm. But here's the thing: the moment you gave yourself time to think, you stepped into the shower, you stepped away from the argument, you came up with a killer one line or the big idea. But we don't give ourselves time to think. Well why is this so important? Here's why. Your brain works in three or four brain states during the day. When you're in an argument, you're in busy beta and your brain is consistently defending itself. When you're in the office, you're typing emails, you're in presentations, you're in meetings, back to back meetings, you're doing PowerPoints, you're scheduling. And we hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think. But the second you stepped out, boom, the big idea came to you. So how do you get into that brain state on demand? And here's why it's important. When you're in what I call busy beta, the door, otherwise known as the reticular activating system between your conscious and subconscious brain is closed. But 87% of your brain is subconscious. We're only using 13% of the capacity of our brain for the vast majority of the day. But what if you could just open that door wide enough and metaphorically put yourself back in the shower? And so what I do is uh, I'll run. And here's why, because 87 percent of your subconscious is every challenge you've ever seen, every innovation, every creativity, every all waiting to help you solve the challenge. But when that door is closed and we hear ourselves say, I don't have time to think, we're working with 13 percent of the capacity of our brain. So I run an energizer. What is an energizer? It's a fun exercise. It lasts 60 seconds. All I'm doing is getting people to laugh. Why am I doing that? The moment I hear laughter, I know I've opened the door just wide enough between the conscious and subconscious brain to that point where they can actually have big ideas. For those people who think, oh, have their best ideas falling asleep or waking up. There's an expression from Thomas Edison. It's called when the penny drops. Um, literally, when I get the big idea, Thomas Edison used to fall asleep at night in an armchair, put a penny between his knees, a tin tray on the floor. As he would fall asleep, his muscles would relax, The penny would drop. It would hit the tin tray. The noise would wake him up and he would write down whatever he was thinking. And you could think, well, that's stupid. I'll never do that. Well, OK, well, who had more inventions painted in the 20th century than anybody else? Google are doing experiments with napping at work. And so, believe it or not, actually being playful at the right time, it's almost, here's the thing, we're born creative. When you went to, uh, you had a bar mitzvah, or you had Hanukkah, or Christmas, or birthdays, you got a giant birthday present, or Christmas present, and it came in an enormous box, huge box, took you ages to take the gift out of the box, and then what did you spend the rest of the day playing with? The box. Why? Because it could be anything you wanted. It was your rocket ship. It was your fort. It was your castle. Then you went to school and you were told it was only a box. And so you're creative, and you're told to colour inside the lines. Hello, <laughs> ah, we're killing creativity from such an early age. The other thing is we, we lose our curiosity. What's the number one question a child asks you again and again and again? Why? 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 I tell you why? Because they know you lied the first time. That's why. But but here's the thing they're better than your consumer insights team and they're better than your data at getting to the insight for innovation. When you do a research, let's say my data, I'll ask you, why do you go to a Disney park on holiday? The number one answer is going to be, I go for the rides. Well, that tells me and my strategy team to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on a capital investment strategy on a new attraction. But if I pause for a moment and act childlike and say, well, why, 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 do, you, why, why do you like rides? Well, I like It's a Small World. Well, why do you like It's a Small World? I remember the music. Why is that? Why why is that significant? It reminds me of going with my mum. Why is that important to you? I take my daughter now on the fifth. Why you got to the insight for innovation. She's got she's not going for a new capital investment strategy. She's going for her memory and nostalgia. That's a communication campaign, which will save you hundreds of millions of dollars of building something she didn't want in the first place. We're all born creative. We're all born imaginative. We're also born. Have you ever so, Ros, Patrick, now be honest with me now. How many times have you stared at the back of the head of somebody you think looks really hot, and that person immediately turned around and stared at you and had to look away really quickly? Come on, <laughs> many I know you've times. done it, right? We've all done it. Right?
1: <laughs> <We've>, <laughs> it's very we've, hard to hold that that, that that glance, right?
2: Right. Well, we, so how how did they know you were looking at them if you were looking at the back of their head? It's called intuition. You have a hundred billion neurons up here. We have a hundred million neurons in our stomach, the first brain has a hundred billion. The second brain has a hundred million. But how many times do we hear ourselves say, I went with my gut? It's a very, very powerful computer. And I'll give you a a case study on how important it can be. We were tasked by Disneyland Paris. The task was um, to get more people to come more often and make more money. Classic task. Um, So our data told us who could afford the brand, who had an affinity to the brand, who'd been shopping online, and who was a 10 out of 10 on a survey of I'm coming this year. But they hadn't come. So clearly our data was missing something. So I put it to the organization that these people were either liars or procrastinators. They told us they were 10 out of 10 of coming, but they hadn't come. So let's go find out. So we went to go and live with a consumer. Scary, frightening. Oh, my God, can't do that for a day. We live with 26 different families. I live with one family. Now, Roz, do you have children? I do. I do. I have a daughter. Okay. so our going in hypotheses was we build it, they will come. Why? because that's the way we've always done it here right so a couple of hundred million dollars on a new attraction yeah no problem we'll be fine so ros um close your eyes for me if you would okay now there's a photograph of your daughter somewhere in your house a physical photograph tell me which room it's in if you would it's hanging on the staircase okay and is it in a frame it is okay and who's in that photograph it's just her okay what's her name her name's Adeline. Adeline. And where was Adeline the day that photograph was taken? Uh, she was
1: sitting on uh, my bed. Playing, okay. Uh, and, and the how sun o- was shining through the window.
2: Okay. Uh, see, you can even see which way the sun's coming at the moment. Uh, <laughs> which, um, how old was Adeline the day that photograph was taken?
1: Uh, 17 months.
2: Okay. How old is she today? She's just almost 19 months. Okay. So, oh, so two months ago. All right. So you got yeah, a baby. Yeah, yeah. All right. So Patrick, Patrick, you got kids? I have one. Come on, close your eyes. Where's that photograph? Close your eyes.
0: Right, uh, oh, I forgot <laughs> you could see me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> damn it! <laughs> just damn it! Okay, okay, I have a picture of a photograph.
2: Okay, where is it?
0: It's on the uh, shelves in the living room of the house.
2: Okay, who's in it?
0: Uh, it is just him.
2: Okay, who's him? My son. My son, he has a name. (laughs) My son, Patrick. My
0: son, Patrick,
2: has a name. Patrick. Patrick. Okay. And where was Patrick the day that photograph was taken?
0: The one I'm thinking of was an official picture. I believe it was his high school graduation picture.
2: Ah, okay. So he would have been how old?
0: Uh, 17, 18.
2: Okay, How old is Patrick today?
0: He's going to turn 30 soon.
2: All right. Okay. So here's the thing. I found the same photograph that you have in your house. I asked this woman, I said, how old are your children, love? Four or five? She goes, oh, no, love. They're 14 and 15. How do I know that to be true? The because um, if I know you've all got that photograph in your house. It could be two years old. It could be 20 years old. And for those of you listening who are so young, you don't have children yet, how do you know it to be true? Because your parents still have that dorky one of you from first grade sitting in the family room <laughs> you wish they got rid of years ago. So so we all had the same clue. We thought we're onto something here. Because does this mean we don't print photographs of our children anymore? Yes, we do. Patrick printed one of him in his graduation. So he thought, what's going on here? So we went back and pushed a bit harder. And here's what we found don't forget our going in hypothesis was if we build it they will come that's a 200 million dollar capital investment strategy and so here's what we found parents will tell you at first pass they want their children to go to kindergarten junior school uh, middle school high school college graduate be happy healthy and successful that's what we want for our kids isn't it no it's not we want them back in that little frame when we walk in the door at night. We are superheroes. We're wonder women. And they come and grab our legs and we fall on the floor. Somebody farts and everybody loses it. These are the best, <laughs> these, these are the best days of our life. So we pushed a bit harder using intuition and intuition alone because we had no data to support this. Make no mistake. And here's what we found. And I'm a dad. I can use my own intuition. I'm asking mums these questions. And here's what I heard them say there are three bittersweet transitions through which a parent and a child must pass patrick has been through all three ros i'm sorry i'm about to break your heart <laughs> you're going you're going you're going to go through all three but i know where i was for each of them i know where i was the day james was 10 it was Monterrey, mexico it was christmas eve he came around the door of abelito's bedroom he looked straight up at me in the eyes his eyes were half full of tears just about to flow and he said papa i was like what he goes are you santa claus i was like Boom, in that one split second, imagination, creativity, uh, Batman, Superman, gone. But what hurt so much was what he had really said was I'm not your little boy anymore, daddy. I'm growing up, that hurt. Now, dads, dads, you will remember where you were that fateful day. Roz, on the other hand, doesn't even remember it ever took place. Why? Because she was a daughter, that's why. So I know exactly where I was that day. I was in Kissimmee, Florida. Uh, there's a black car coming this way. I'm outside by the curb. My daughter's inside me on the pavement, sidewalk. Sorry, Paneras here. Uh, it was a Tuesday morning. It was about 10:30. She was 13. The day she dropped my left hand in public because she didn't want to hold daddy's hand in public anymore because it was embarrassing. And so um, you get, Ros. you text your dad when you get off this call. He will answer you in a nanosecond and he'll tell you if it was his right hand or his left hand. And he'll tell you what day it was. But you can't I'm gonna remember. I'm going
1: to give it a try. I'm going to give it a try, Duncan. Let me see so, how um, my dad is. So <laughs>
2: the, the last one was actually, uh, I guess, this morning, believe it or not, because um, my baby left home again. I've had her for three months during the pandemic and she and we took her back to the airport and she's back up to New York. So we cheered and we hugged and we wished her on away. and then my wife and I got in the car and cried her eyes out all the way home. Uh, so our going in hypotheses was if we build it, they will come. But what we learned was what mum does not wake up in the morning worrying about whether or not Disneyland Paris is going to have new attractions this year. What's important to her is how quickly her children are growing and how she wants to make special memories for them while they still believe, while they still hold my hand, while they're still here. That's a communication campaign targeted at parents of small children, uh, dad of a tween, because you can break his heart in a nanosecond, and parents of older children, one that drove record sales to Disneyland Paris and drove a very product-centric culture into a consumer-centric culture, where it is now mandatory for every Disney executive to work one day a year inside a Disney park and one day every two years inside a a a go-visit-a-consumer. Patrick, your question you asked the first time is this. When was the last time anybody listening to this podcast went into the house of a consumer? Their over-reliance on data and focus groups. Focus groups are bullshit. I'm sorry, but they are. They're a room full of people in a, behind a two-way mirror. Does anybody live in a house with a two-way mirror, other than the people in the, <laughs> the porn, other than the people in the porn industry, obviously? <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. It's not a relaxed environment to get true insights out of people. We invite twelve individuals in. You don't get the real insight out of the individual. You get it out of the couple because couples police each other. When you get a couple together in their living room, it's not what they tell you. It's what you see, like that photograph. And here's the thing. If you ask dad by himself in a focus group, what do you do at Disney? He'll say, I go on the rides, the thrill rides. I'm a manly man. But if his wife is sitting next to him, she's going to go, no, 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 dear. You did Small World 17 times back to back last year and you loved it. <laughs> you get honesty out of the couple, not the individual. Intuition is very powerful. And imagination. You know, Patrick had that dream last week about Beyonce, David Beckham and the unicorn that he doesn't want to talk about. But that's you weren't okay. supposed
0: to tell that.
2: <laughs> but here's, here, here's my point. We're all born creative. We're all born with intuition. We're all born curious, and we're all born with an amazing imagination. But we've been told they're not important and they get squashed out of it. You're in finance, you're not creative. You're in HR, you're not creative. You're in IT, you're not creative. We're all bloody creative, we've just forgotten how. But here's the thing, in the next decade, artificial intelligence is scheduled to strip away between 20 and 30% of the jobs that exist today. How will you and I compete Well, I'm going to get a small pub in Scotland, but how will you compete, Patrick? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, No, but here's the thing. How will we compete with intelligence far superior to our own? Because here's why. The four things you were born with, creativity, intuition, curiosity and imagination are the four core human traits that I've spoken to three or four artificial intelligence experts and asked them, do you believe you can program? creativity, curiosity, imagination or intuition any time in the next 10 years. Curiosity? Probably. The algorithms are already running. These artificial intelligence robots are running algorithms thousands of times faster than the scientists trying to find a vaccine. And that's why vaccines used to take 10 years. But guess what? Now they reckon it'll be in under one year. Why? Because artificial intelligence is doing the work. But here's the thing. The things we're born with are actually, I believe, will be the most employable skill sets of the next decade.
1: So, Duncan, you mentioned a few times, and, you know, I'm very present to this, having dealt with a lot of the big corporates over the years, is that innovation doesn't sit in one department. It doesn't sit with the marketing team. And you've got such a big ship to turn in some of the big companies, you know, and you mentioned finance, you mentioned legal, and and these are the people looking at the bottom line. What have you found successful? or How have you got those people, which are normally quite left brain, left brain people, to actually take on the the armor of innovation, so that they feel like it's their responsibility. Because you'll know, you, you know, you have half the business coming up with great ideas. They go to the other half of the business who's watching the numbers, and as you say, it gets crushed. So how how do you turn so many different type of people in the same direction?
2: Okay. So the biggest barrier to innovation, I don't believe it's time to think, I call it your river of thinking. Your My river of thinking on Disney after 30 years is very fast, very wide and very deep, allowing me to make quick and informed decisions. But we are being asked to get out of our river of thinking more often quicker to disrupt. But we constantly hear people, the, more, the other barrier is the more expertise and the more experience we have, the more reasons we know why the new idea won't work. And we constantly sort to shoot it down without even considering it. So I'd like to run an exercise. Roz, uh, we're going to do a Harry Potter themed party. I'm going to come up with you sir, with some ideas. And I'd like you to start each response with no because. So okay. I was thinking, right, we could come over to your house, we could turn your house into the Hogwarts dining room, and we could have a sorting hat at the entrance, and all the good people like you would clearly get Gryffindor, and all the bad people like Patrick would obviously get Slytherin.
1: No, that's not going to work, because it's then people are going to judge each other. They're going to have tags, you're the good people, you're the bad
2: people, and it's going to ruin the party. Mm. All right, I tell you what, what if we get a magic potions room favorite, full of our favourite alcoholic beverages, and we could create amazing magic potions?
1: No, because they're going to be some, you know, it's an underage kids' party. Why would we have alcohol there? And then even then, who would would imagine that they're drinking a magic potion?
2: Okay, fair point. What if we went outside and we all had broomsticks and we ran around in the back garden looking like idiots pretending we were playing Quidditch? No, because I've got trees in the backyard, so
1: they would knock knock the broomsticks and, you know, it would just end in a disaster.
2: (laughs) All right. What if we just serve butterbeer then?
1: no because butter and beer that's food and liquid who would even believe you can get butter beer
2: okay so let's stop there <laughs> clearly clearly you've had lots of expertise in killing ideas so um so, <laughs> so let me ask you a question do you think our idea was getting bigger or smaller 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 okay
1: i felt yeah. like you were you were losing excitement and uh
2: motivation Here's the thing. You've got lots of people in your organization who come in your door every day with an idea. And if the first two words out of your mouth are no because, they're not coming back at you. You just have to remind yourself if you tend to be what I call a reductionist or a pragmatist is we are not green lighting this idea for execution Mm. today. We are merely greenhousing it together. Now, I want to try another exercise with Patrick by using two simple words that I believe can change a culture when used at the right time. And those magical little words will be yes and Patrick. Okay. So I'm going to come at you with an idea for a Star Wars party, and I would like you to, at the beginning of every response, I'd like you to use yes and, and we'll just build it together, okay? All right. So I was thinking we could turn to, oh, wait, I could come to your house, we could paint it black, and we could turn it into the Death Star. Yes,
0: and in the, in the outside, we could put like little of those fast little spaceships that they used to have the, the spider ones along the way, and hang it from the trees.
2: Yes, and you're in St. Pete, so we can have the St. Petersburg Philharmonic Orchestra outside on the lawn dressed as stormtroopers, and we could have Darth Vader conduct them with his lightsaber.
0: Yes, and we can get John Williams to come, assuming John Williams is still alive, and he could actually do a medley of all of the pieces that he would have done around that.
2: Yes, and even if he wasn't, he
0: could come as a hologram. Yes, and exactly, which may even be better. And we could have drinks and beverages that are all about celebrating John Williams and all of the great things that he's done throughout his career. And maybe we have a side room for some of his other big scores.
2: Yes, and an intergalactic food and wine festival.
0: Oh, yes, and that would be great. And Jar Jar Biggs could come, and he could be the bartender.
2: So... A lot more energy, a lot more laughter, a lot more hands in the air. Uh, So would you say our idea was getting bigger or smaller?
0: Our idea was getting outlandishly big.
2: Okay. Um, Again, you can always take a big idea and value engineer it down. You can never take a small crap idea and turn it into a big one. Um, But far more importantly, when we finished uh, building it together, whose idea was it? Ours. Ours. Two very simple words from the world of improv to take the power, to turn the power of my idea into our idea, where you've got lots of barriers at work, you've got lots of approval levels, you've got lots of local government, you've got lots of rules. As you continue to pitch my idea, it's not going anywhere. But as Mm -hmm. you use the words yes and, it makes the idea bigger, not smaller, by our own violation, and it turns the power of my idea into our idea. It is an extremely powerful tool to use at the right time. And you're
1: saying that is one of the keys to bringing all the departments
2: of the company along the journey, yeah, and I think it's about giving them tools, simple tools. So let's say, so here's a tool. It's called, well, I'll go through a couple. A naive expert. Actually, do you guys have pen and paper with you? Yep. Yes. Cool. And you can see me, right? Yes. Okay, so who we is can a naive see you, expert? but our listeners okay. can't. <laughs> but that's okay, because that I, well, so listeners get a pen and paper and join us at the table. So here we go. So um, I was asked to design a new retail dining and entertainment complex for Hong Kong Disneyland. In the room were 12 white male American architects, that is called groupthink. So I invited in as my naive expert, a young female Chinese chef, why? Because she wasn't then. What's the success criteria for a naive expert? They are not there to solve the challenge for you. That is an unrealistic expectation. They are there because they know nothing about your industry, which gives them permission to ask the silly question that you're too embarrassed to ask in front of your peers or to throw out the audacious idea ungoverned by your constraints. Their job is not to solve the challenge for you. Their job is to say something, to stop you thinking the way you always do, your everything, and to help you think differently. And I'd like to demonstrate that for you now. I gave the architects a challenge. I gave them an object and I asked them to draw it and I gave them seven seconds. So if you've got your pen and piece of paper ready, I'm gonna name an object, you're going to draw it. Please could you draw a house? Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Now hold your houses up. Let me see them, come on. And even for the people, (laughs) twins, baby. Come on, Rose, let's see what you got. Yeah, it's, look at that. Twins. Everybody's drawn the same house. And for mine those has of you a, like, hold
0: on. Hold on. Mine has a
2: tree. Oh, wait, all right. It, mine's oh, wait, there's always mine's a, double there's, story, Patrick. There's always, there's, always a an over, <laughs> there's always an overachiever, Patrick. So um, so here's the thing. But For the vast majority of us and for those listening, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you drew one door in the ground floor in the middle. Two windows. You're so, still so insecure. You drew no, no, files no, over I them. Drew six. And what? And what shape? With With okay. Thank you, Roz. And what <laughs> shape's the roof? A triangle. Why? Why do we draw houses like that? Well, we all drew the same house, and pretty much 98% of the people, except the overachievers that I'm working with right now, drew the same house. Drew the same house that I did. Why? Because your river of expertise who tells you that's what a house should look like. The young Chinese chef, when she held up her picture, she held up an image of dim sum architecture. It was a brown bamboo dim sum house. Why? Because she thinks different to other people. And on the way out the door, somebody slapped a post-it note over her picture. We said, distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Seven years later, the strategic brand positioning that guided everything we did at the Shanghai Disney Resort, including the design, was distinctly Disney, authentically Chinese. Another tool that's very powerful is just to stop people thinking the way they always do. So Roz, I'm coming to South Africa. Patrick, I'm coming to... Well, no, Patrick, I'll I'll be with you in a minute. Roz, coming to South Africa, you and I are going to open a car wash. Tell me the three or four essential ingredients we must have in a car wash. What must we have? We need
1: a water supply with a
2: hose. Water, hose.
1: Uh, We need soap.
2: Soap. And we need sponges. All right, that's good. Water, soap, brushes, and, and sponges. Right, Patrick, I'm coming to Atlanta or St. Petersburg. I can't remember where you are. And we, we are going to go into business, and we are going to open an auto spa. Spa. Now, what could we put in our auto spa? A masseuse. A masseuse.
0: Absolutely. Cocktails. Cocktails. Um, good lounge music.
2: Good lounge Here's the thing. In less than five seconds, I took you out of your river of thinking of what you know to belong in a car wash, water brushes sponge dryer and got you to consider what we could put in an auto spa masseuses cocktails etc shows you where patrick's mind goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. another, another point. but here's the thing this, and alcohol <laughs> this this tool is remarkably powerful on july 17th 1955 when we opened the doors to disneyland walt said we will not have any customers in our park we will only have guests And think about how you feel when you're treated as a customer and when you're treated as a guest. He said, we will not have any employees. We will only have cast members. there will be cast for a role in the show. With that simple re-expression, he created a level of hospitality that has never been replicated or duplicated by anybody else. A more recent example in 2011, if we had asked the question that companies continue to ask themselves today that they will go out of business with, with Generation Z, if they continue to ask, how might we make more money? If we'd said, how might we make more money? We'd put the gate price up by 3% and we'd have hit our quarterly results. That's called iteration, not innovation. But we re expressed the challenge. And instead of saying, how might we make more money? We said, how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point? Well, everybody knows what the pain point of visiting a Disney theme park is. It's called lines. <laughs> so we said, what if there were no lines? What if we eliminated the front desk in our hotels, the turnstile at the front of the park, and the need to stand in line to pay for merchandise or food and beverage or favorite attractions? We didn't know how to do it. If you know how to do it, it's not innovation. So we looked around the world, and sure enough, there was RFID technology. We slapped it into a little plastic band called it Disney's Magic Band. You, you don't check in or check out of a hotel anymore. That is your room key. You don't wait 20 minutes to get in the Magic Kingdom anymore. You swipe and go. Your reservations for your favorite attractions are on that band. You don't wait in line. If I tap an item of merchandise once, it goes to my hotel room. Twice, it might go to my house. If I save my food on my smartphone, I'm going to Pinocchio's Village House for lunch today. I walk in, I sit down at table 47. The food comes fresh to me. Had we have asked how might we make more money, we'd have made 3%. But because we said how might we solve the biggest consumer pain point, the average guest at Walt Disney World today has about two hours free time they didn't have four years ago. What has that resulted in? Record revenues. Record revenues on food and beverage, merchandise, record intent to return or intent to recommend, and data collection out the wazoo. Tens of millions of people pouring through the gates every year are live crowdsourcing the future design of all the products and services Disney creates simply by telling them what they like and what they don't.
0: I, I love it. Um, I, I want to go to a, kind of a, a version of a lightning round if you're up for it. Are you up for that, Duncan? Lightning round it is. Lightning round. And this is what I mean by the lightning round. This is Kira, got a-
2: Kira Knightley.
0: Yes. <laughs> we, that, was, we,
2: that was the first question,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're actually going to do it in Jeopardy style. You blurt out oh, an I answer go. and then I'll figure out what oh, the question No. Oh, um oh, So, so the, the, <laughs> the lightning round concept is our listeners kind of come here and they try to grab little nuggets, like something they can take back. So, imagine you're talking to a leader of a work team. It may not even be a most senior leader, right? They, they've got a staff of people. It may be, as Rod said, maybe I'm in a finance function or on a supply chain function, right? So, we want to kind of give them. These nuggets that they can go, oh, my gosh, I can action that like I can learn this from Duncan. So I'll give you one. I'll give you like two topics that I've been kind of swirling around as I've been listening. One is talent development. Um, I'm doing some work right now and we're working. We're going through the World Economic Forum's Future of Work Study, where they talk about the top 10 things that work talent really should be investing in and there's some of the things you're touching on critical problem solving creativity and innovation but if i give you as a duncan wardle you get to declare right now what is the one or two top talent development things that you think the workforce of the future should have what do you got
2: creativity curiosity
0: ah dig into curiosity because that word hasn't come up yet today so i'll extend your lightning round a little bit to build on curiosity
2: Well, remember, we asked earlier on about why, 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 and why again, and how we got to the insight for innovation by being curious. Yeah. So that's it. I mean, it's, it's, we're not curious. It's, we always stop at the first why and by spending time with your consumer and pushing to the fourth or fifth. Why, if you only look in big data, you're only looking where your competition is looking. So how will you find that insight for innovation by looking somewhere different? And by the way, when was the last time you sat down in the living room with one of your consumers?
0: Love it. So I want to move to another area and you just used the word there and I was going to go back to it. So A lot of our listeners and a lot of business people are trained to be data hogs, right? Data centric. I've got to mine numbers. I've got to mine data. I could be listening to you saying Duncan is dismissive of data. But I actually heard you bring up a lot of business things first. Well, I can make more money if I think this way. I can do this. I anchor into data. So how would you connect creativity with data usage in a team environment for
2: business? Yeah, no, here's the thing. I'm not daft, I look at the data first. (laughs) But our our data had told us in that Disneyland Paris story, who could afford us, who had an affinity to the brand, who was shopping online, who was a 10 out of 10 of I'm coming this year. Guess what, they hadn't come. Therefore, so that's what I call your got clues. Clues within the organization that you already have. Now you have to go out and find your, not clues, the missing pieces of your data. And that's when you go out on what I call a consumer immersion safari and try and find those missing pieces. Uh, so for example, your data will tell you um, that if you earn $100,000 a year or more, you could afford a Walt Disney World vacation. Okay, great. So then you could pump tens of millions of dollars into New York and Manhattan, because that's where lots of people earn lots of money. But if you actually got out, just sometimes got at, uh, So, But what if they weren't coming? Well, but your data tell that they should because they could afford it. Well, hang on a minute. Have you ever gone inside one of their apartments? Oh, yeah, it's empty. Why is it empty? 85% of my income goes on rent. Oh, so you can't afford a Disney. Vacation. Oh, whoops. Hmm. You, you, so your data is going to get better and better and better and more informed. There is no question. But you are looking now to drive that insight for innovation by looking outside of your data sometimes to look where other people aren't looking to come up with something that's innovative.
0: I love it. Raza, I've got one or two more, but do you have one you want to fire in?
2: I do.
1: I do. I wanted to pivot you a little bit um, uh, to a topic that I think is on many families' minds at the moment, and that is education. Obviously, we're going through a huge shift um, with the pandemic at the moment, and the future of education is a worry for so many parents now where are you seeing education and entertainment starting to blend into? Because, you know, you've had the the wonderful privilege of being at Disney for so many years, and it's such a beautiful environment that's been focused on entertainment. Do you see the worlds of entertainment and education blending as we move forward? Because the the world of learning is not going to look the same as, as, you know, what it does today. And it's a huge question mark. Do you see... Those two things coming together, and what is the role they'll play off of each other more as we go
2: forward? Yeah, well, I've been talking to a bloke called Gareth and a girl called Roz who both believe the future, <laughs> who both believe the future of uh, online training at least is gaming. Why? When you say, if you remember the old Charlie Brown cartoons and the principal, yes. you never quite saw her, but all you ever heard her say was wah 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 yes. wah wah. Well, if you ask people, uh, do a word association game, and you, the first two words you say are online training, the word you will most quickly hear back is the word boring. Uh, but here's I, I want to take on a bigger point education is failing our children education is killing creativity but yet creativity has been assigned as the most important skill set of the next decade and so and here's why here's the challenge right why do I believe India will be the biggest superpower by 2050 by a long 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 way not because their population will outstrip China this year not because their percentage of population underneath 25 far outstrips China not because the vast majority of them speak English which the Chinese do not it's got nothing to to do with that. They are so poor, they don't have formal education. And because they don't have formal education, you are building 1.4 billion entrepreneurs. Now, and I'll give you a raw example of one. I was asked to go to the Dharavi Slum in Mumbai two years ago. If you've seen Dog Millionaire, you've seen the Dharavi Slum. There's 5 million people living in an area the same size as eight Disney theme parks. They have no education formal education, the level of creativity and imagination and entrepreneurialism that's taking place in that slum will outstrip anybody inside corporate America. I'm sorry, but it's true. No, and how I do I know that's we, we were given a task to create electricity. Uh, we, yeah, sorry, to create light where there was no electricity. So we thought, oh, all right, give it a go. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'll give it a shot. We went out. And we, uh, there was a small boy. who was about 12 years of age. Had noticed when he was sitting at lunch, uh, a, a spotlight had hit his, his plastic bottle that he was drinking his water out of, and it started to refract light. So we got hold of the bottle and we took the branding label round the middle of the bottle off, and it refracted more light. Then we played with levelling the water up and down till we got it to the right level, and it refracted. The light got wider. Then we cut the lip off the bottle, and the light refracted even wider. So we thought, hmm. So I phoned the CMO of a, a, let's just say, a French uh, producer of natural water or spa water. And I said, hey, you're about to trash the planet with 500,000 empty bottles. Give them to me for free. And by the way, ship them to me for free. And by the way, I need you to take your logo off it because it's getting in the way of the light. So he did. And we went in and we stuck it in the hole of a hut where there's no light. And during daylight hours, we lit 500,000 huts where there was no electricity. That came from a 14 year old boy who'd never had any education. And then what do you think he did next? He started selling the damn bottles. (laughs) These are entrepreneurs. Our education is killing creativity in children and it needs to be addressed.
0: I love it, I love it. All right, final lightning round question. you're, you get to talk to our, our listeners along the way. Is there is there one thing, a book, a podcast, a publication or something that you would tell them, hey, go look at this. It'll make you a better change activator.
2: Listen to Patrick Fitzmaurice and Roses podcast every week. OK, they're, um, already,
0: they're already here. Let's, so right, let's okay, move on to right, okay. doing
2: Number one barrier to innovation, time. If I were to name one of the most innovative companies in the world and gave you a list of 10 to choose from, Google would be on everybody's list. Don't read a book. Give yourself time to think. One hour a month, or maybe one hour a quarter, but I'd start one hour a month, every first Friday of every month from 9 till 10 a.m., have a brown bag breakfast and invite your team in. No PowerPoint presentations, no why is it good for the business. Just get them to talk about something they've seen in the marketplace, not in your industry ideally, that they thought was innovative or creative. You'll be amazed at the amount of ideas you could tie back to that breakfast conversation. The other challenge I would give you is this. Because why is Google so much more innovative than you? Because Google gives their employees time to think. It's called 20% time, but you don't. But here's the thing. So maybe you start one day a quarter. First Friday of every month, you have your brown bag breakfast, and then no meetings, no presentations, no emails. Oh, we can't do that. Why not? Well, because we always do a weekly meeting. Well, we always do a weekly report. Well, who reads the weekly report? Nobody reads the weekly report. Stop doing them. Um, I'm being facetious, sorry. Give yourselves time to think.
0: I love it, so I have uh, I judge I judge the success of a lot of these is how many little pieces of paper I've randomly scribbled thoughts and notes on along the <laughs> way, and I have lots in front of me. Um, I, and I know in the workshops that you run, you hit a lot of key topics along the way. Where can some people go to go find out more about the, those kind of workshops that that, that you do?
2: Uh, Duncanwardle.com, And the reason I do the workshops is this. You can inspire and motivate people from a stage. You cannot help them. That is misleading. People learn by doing. They do not learn by listening. And that's where the workshops come in, because we take a fake challenge. So they all relax. They listen, they learn, and they'll go through the entire design thinking process. But they're doing it, not me. You can't tell somebody they're creative, they have to prove it to themselves. And what I love is usually about the middle of the workshop, you see this light bulb go off in somebody's face when you see the smile on their faces when they think, I could do this, and I take enormous pride away from that.
0: I love it. Roz, uh, uh, Raz, are you all good? Uh, anything to close on before I close out?
1: I'm good, I'm just, uh, Duncan, I just wanna sort of reiterate to our listeners that, that time, you know, one of the best CEOs I've ever worked with is, is a CEO who said to me, I spend 80% on my business and I spend 20% on my own away from the business, brainstorming. Mm. And I do that religiously. And it's been one of the key successes of my career. And I just think it's such a valuable nugget for our listeners. Because you so often think, am I wasting time? But it's not. It's that investment Mm. in the future, you know. It's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you. Um, Thank you for being on the show with us
0: thank you for having me and awesome and in our show notes we'll link to DuncanWortle.com you'll see another recap of all of those things I will actually put in two things that if you really care and you want to reach out to Duncan you have to ask him about the exercise that has something to do with sex workers for bees and you may actually have to (laughs) and you may have actually have to ask him about the exercise and the story that he tells about how he managed to get the presidentially pardoned turkey uh, onto an airliner and into Disneyland at the last minute along the way so a couple of stories that I actually happen to know of that would be fascinating go ahead
2: sex therapists. I'm sorry not
0: sex workers for me (laughs) careful careful (laughs) careful Patrick (laughs) that 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 was another guest I'm sorry that was one of our other guests different thing awesome Duncan I on behalf of our listeners on behalf of us and Roz thank you so much for taking the time sharing so much of your expertise we really appreciate it cool thanks for having me thanks all thanks Duncan try to remember the exercise it was sex <laughs>
1: therapist <laughs>